0: Good morning, everybody. How is everyone today? <clears throat> Good to see you. So, my name is Chris Sherid. I'm the other Chris. It's a lot of confusion sometimes at our meetings and messages and things like that. Which Chris are you talking about? Uh, I'm the Discipleship Minister here, and it's my privilege to talk to you today about God's Word and the reliability of Scripture. And so, I really want to share with you the, specifically the area of prophecy because we're in the middle of this study of Daniel and the first six chapters we've been doing are about events that happened to Daniel and now the second half of the book of Daniel is going to shift over to these visions and dreams and prophetic stuff and we're going to take a break just this week and talk about so why is that a really big deal when it comes to God's word and why should we get excited about prophecy how does it actually help us trust the reliability of God's word so we're going to jump into that the The specific area, there's an area of theology called apologetics, which is the defense of your faith, why you believe what you do. And I remember when I got into college, I had grown up in the church and in a Christian home, and I began to realize I didn't have so much a bunch of unanswered questions. I had a whole bunch of unquestioned answers that I knew all the Sunday school answers that would get me, you know, the smile from the teacher or an A in Bible class, but I didn't know why I believed certain things, and I began to realize if this Christianity thing is true, if I'm going to commit my life to this and really live according to it, I need to be confident in this book, because this is what I'm, I'm going as my guideline here, and so why do I actually believe that this is really the Word of God? And so I, I got my very first apologetics book called Evidence at a man's Verdict by Josh McDowell and devoured it and really became fascinated in this. And my prayer today, I'm just going to share a little bit with you on how this area of prophecy affects us and why we can believe the Bible. When you think of prophecy, some of you might think of movies that came out in the 70s. Anyone seen these movies? Yes, anyone? Yes, a few of you. Um, Some of you might think of in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was the Left Behind series that came out. And, and it's like, are we in the end times? And I think every generation is always trying to figure out like, oh, maybe that's us. We're in the end times now because look at this and look at COVID. That's clearly here. And like, we're always trying to make it uh, apply to us. And the truth is we've been living in the end times of the last day since Jesus left. And we're just, we're just waiting. But sometimes you'll hear about these prophecy seminars you can go to where they have all these charts and everything and you got to pay attention. And it ends up thinking when we think of prophecy, you think it's like this just particular group of people that want to just geek out about charts and and what these animals represent. And I really don't want to talk about that today. What I want to talk about is what are examples of prophecy that we've already seen come true that there's no way anyone could have known, and how does that add to the reliability of, of this that we hold in our hand today? And so we're going to look at one of my favorite examples in the book of Ezekiel. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Ezekiel 26, we'll get to it in a minute. But let me talk to you about the word prophet, because when we think of a prophet, a lot of times, all we think of is someone who's always looking in the future. Like they're always walking around just saying like, hey, this is going to happen to you tomorrow. And by the way, this is going to happen next week. And that's, that's more of the role of a seer that you hear about in Scripture that God was like, no, I, you don't need to have seers. But when it comes to God's prophet, what he sent, it was not so much foretelling, but forthtelling. In other words, you really see the prophets show up, pop up in the Old Testament when the kings begin to come into power, where God is sending these prophets to give them direction and to help direct the people back. And they're forth God's word. They're reminding them, they're, they're, they're calling them to repentance, come back and, and, and this is what God has called you, remember. And sometimes they are foretelling. Sometimes they're pronouncing judgment on this king or on the people, on, on God's people or other nations. But a lot of times it's just them forth telling. But again, you see the prophets and the kings lined up. In fact, almost all of the Old Testament books that our prophets, uh, the very first few verses will say during the reign of, and they'll say the king that this prophet showed up during. So when you think of prophet, don't always think of someone uh, that is just always telling the future. And prophecy is really its own genre. It's its own style of writing. Sometimes it's very poetical. It's usually very symbolic. But a lot of times it tells you what the symbols are. We're going to read in, in Daniel where he has this vision, and he's like, I, I have no idea what, it, what that means let me go ask an angel. And he goes over and he asks the angel and the angel explains them what it, what it, what it meant. And so we're going to dive into that in the second half of the study of, of Daniel, which is really exciting to see how God was, was, was really giving Daniel the privilege of, of learning about this ahead of time. So when it comes to God's word, a couple things I want to point out. There are two options when it comes to knowledge of a divine creator. Is there a God? The first one is revelation. He speaks to us. He tells us. He, he lets us know, hey, this is what I'm like. Or the other option is speculation. We guess. We try to figure it out on our own. And the good news is uh, God has revealed himself to us. How important is God's word, though? Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, prayed for his people to be sanctified. And he said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And this is the the crucial thing to remember, you guys. If God has spoken, nothing else is more important, right? Like, this is a big deal if God has spoken. I tell my kids a lot, you can't be close to God and far from his word. Like, this is the number one way that God has revealed himself to us. And because of that, Satan hates God's word, wants to dismiss it or distort it, those kinds of things. Very first recorded words of Satan, did God really say? Like, he doesn't like the fact that we have access to the very words of God. So in this area of God revealing himself to us, in apologetics, there's, it's called general revelation, in kind of a general way you can figure out that there's a God, and he's revealed himself through his creation, through the cosmos, through the incredible complexity of life and cells, even just the Cambrian explosion of the biological Big Bang, of all of a sudden in the fossil record, there's all of these major uh, types of organisms that we find, you can find evidence for God in all the incredible design and complexity and order that you see that there's a code that requires a coder or a design requires a, a designer. That's some of the ways God's revealed himself to us. He's also revealed himself to us in our conscience. Romans 2 says this, that pretty much anybody is going to agree, like, I can tell you one of those people is not good and one of those people is, is, is good. Mother Teresa was great, but Hitler was bad. Well, where does that come from if there's no God? If there's no God, we have no real standard. It's just my personal preference. I kind of like that she preferred to help people. He preferred to kill people. It's just what I'm... That's not what people think of. They're like, no, there really is a wrong that was done there. Well, here's the argument. If there's no God, there's no standard of right and wrong to differentiate. It's just personal opinion. So that's called the moral argument. And then you've got God's word being preserved. And you can look at this through archaeology. You can look at this through history. How God's word goes right along with... What we discovered, the Dead Sea Scrolls are an example there. That's one of the caves where they found some that show that God's Word has been preserved. The copies that we have, the manuscript evidence compared to any other ancient book is overwhelming that what you have today is what was written down. It's, it's incredible. That doesn't make the Bible supernatural yet. That just means we've got a book that's reliable, that's trustworthy, that's historically accurate. It goes along with archaeology. Do we think it's supernatural? Some of the reasons, we're going to look at this in a minute, that we can believe is because of what Jesus fulfilled. That you look at the the, the Gospels and the recording and, and the amazing things that Jesus did and how he revealed the Father to us, all of those arguments together kind of begin to make this strong case. Each of those strands of arguments can come together, and there's more than just those. To make the strong reason to believe that Christianity is true, that God has revealed himself, and that the Bible is reliable. And then we'll look at some examples in, in just a minute. But I think the number one conviction that we need to have as believers is this. That the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God and the final authority for my life. And that second part is really crucial, right? Because now it comes down to what is governing my life. It's not just this book that's supposed to sit on the shelf if we believe it's living and active and, and it's supposed to be my plumb line and my conscience and my compass. It's my final authority. And when you think of this game, Jenga, this came out, I remember when I was a senior in high school, that you begin to take out different pieces that are easy, but eventually towards the end you're taking out these bottom layers, and, which is kind of the goal of the game, and eventually collapses. What we believe about Scripture is one of the foundational things that you cannot take away from. And so that's why it's of supreme importance that we really do believe the Bible is God's word. And it's not blind faith. It's not just me wishing it to be true. It's not just true because there's more of us doing the believing. That's not the way faith works. That's not what God calls us to to put our trust in. Biblical faith is trusting in what you have reason to believe is true. And God has revealed himself to us. Um, Every moral and social issue that we're dealing with today is going to come back to is there a God and has he spoken? Sometimes when my sons get themselves ready, my younger sons, they'll come out ready to go to church with a button-up shirt and it's off a little bit. You guys ever have this happen? And you know exactly what happened. They got their first button wrong, and so every button after that is going to be wrong, right? This issue of is there a God and has he spoken, is he the designer and the definer of reality, is what everything's going to come back to. Well, how do you define marriage? Well, That depends. Is God the designer and definer of marriage? What about sexuality? Well, that depends. Is God the designer and definer of sexuality? Every major issue is going to come back to this, or we just become an echo of our culture, right? And so this is why it's of supreme importance. Is there a God and has he spoken to us? And um, this is the big question for today. Who gets to write the story of reality? Do you get to just make it up as you go? and change whatever you want to change, or is there actually a standard we have to go by? On our church website, by the way, this is our statement of faith about the Bible. We believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the word of God, which never fails. It is our guide to faith and practice, and we have a series of verses there. I want to put these up on the screen just so you know. This is where we're coming from. These are the basic assumptions that this church has, which is why everything that we do is going to be centered around the Bible, and I've tied them all with uh, the letter P in case you're writing this down, you want to remember some of this stuff. The first one is the process. How did we get the Bible? Well, here's what 2 Peter chapter 1 says. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along it is used in other places to describe like the wind driving a ship along. So therefore, what that means is the Holy Spirit spoke through these writers in such a way that they wrote down word for word what God wanted them to say. Theologically, we call this verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal meaning all the words, plenary, all, and then was inspired by God, which we'll get to that word in just a minute. But this is a foundational belief that Protestants hold of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. The product and the purpose of God's word is in 2 Timothy 3, which is also listed on our website there. All scripture is breathed out by God. Anyone grew up learning all scripture is inspired by God? That version? That's good. It's just that we use that word inspired in different ways. Like that was an inspiring, you know, pep talk by the coach, inspiring movie, inspiring book. It literally is God breathed. It's one word in the Greek. It's breathed out by God. And the idea is the way God breathed life into Adam and he became this living soul. That that's what God's word is. It's God-breathed. All scripture is breathed up by God and is profitable or useful for, and then he mentions four things, teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. So the teaching part is you just need to grow in knowledge. It's it's important to grow in knowledge. Knowledge is important. Your heart can't love, what your mind doesn't know, right? So you get information. But then there's the rebuking part, which is where it's showing me where I'm wrong. But then the good news is there's the correcting part, which shows me how to make it right. And then the final purpose is to get me ready to do something with it, to train me so that I'm ready. It says, so that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that's the purpose of God's word. That's the result of this Holy Spirit breathing through uh, the prophets, the, the authors there. And the other thing, the other role of scripture, especially the law, we mentioned this on there in Galatians 3, is it's a plumb line, that God's word does show us the absolute standard of righteousness that God demands. And here's the deal about God's law. It doesn't vindicate me. It just condemns me. It's a mirror that shows me that I'm crooked, but it doesn't help me. It doesn't clean me up. It shows me where to go to get cleaned up. But that's what God's law is there to do, is to show me this is the holy, sovereign, amazing, perfect God, and we don't measure up to that. And so, lest you think, well, I'll just keep the law and I can keep it by myself and I'll be good enough. It's like, you won't be. You can't be. So here's what it says. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You could be good enough. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, some versions say, our tutor, our taskmaster, kind of like a, um, in, in Greek times when they would have a, a person that was helping take the kids, kind of their guardian that would lead them to school and make sure they're doing everything they should do. That's kind of what the law did to lead us to Christ. It says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So God's word is true because... God is true and it reflects his character, but the problem is God's law is perfect and I'm not. So what did God do? The lawmaker became the law keeper so that he could pardon lawbreakers. That's the purpose of God's law. It's that plumb line for us. And then the preservation of God's law, this is also what we hold as an important thing. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus comes and fulfills the law that we couldn't fulfill. And then he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, literally not the least stroke of a pen will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so that's the cool thing about God's word, that it doesn't matter if it's 1820 or 1920 or 2020, it doesn't change. That it stays constant. And God has preserved his word and brought it all the way up to us to the present Psalm 119, 160 says, "All your words are true, all your righteous laws are eternal." So <coughs> Excuse me, the Bible doesn't change to fit changing times. Right? Last thing, Hebrews 4:12, this is the power, <coughs> excuse me, of God's word. For the Word of God is living and active. It's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is why you can read a passage and you're like, that's exactly where I'm at right now. I've read this before, but I never saw this part. That's because it's living, it's active. The Holy Spirit who inspired it is working through it to illuminate us as believers. That's what we believe about God's Word as well. So again, it's great to know that the Bible is reliable in all these other areas. Why do we believe the Bible is supernatural? Supernatural. Let me give you the logic of the, the reasoning that we go through as believers. Number one, we would say, well, the Bible is unique in its ability to accurately predict future events. Number two, this could not be the result of human guesswork. In other words, the person, it, it's so specific. I mentioned the prophets were forth and sometimes foretellers, but they weren't fortune tellers. When you think of fortune telling, you get like this, you know, in the... Fortune cookie thing, it's like, you will meet someone today. And it's like really vague, right? What you see in Scripture, we're going to look at an example here in a minute, is very specific stuff. There's no way that anyone could have guessed that because most of the times this is filled, fulfilled hundreds of years later. Isaiah writing about the Messiah in the 700s B.C., okay? That's an example there of, it's written way ahead of time. So the conclusion is, therefore, only someone outside of time and history could do this. So this is the way God verifies the words that a prophet is speaking. Sometimes he'll allow them to make a prediction, then it comes true to back up the words. The miracles back up the, 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 the thing being taught or the thing being uh, reminded of the people. And this is the way Nicodemus, by the way, related to Jesus. He said, teacher, we know that you're from God because no one could do the works that you're doing unless God was, was working through him or from him. So that's our reasoning behind this and a lot of times we think of how could God have known that ahead of time because we're stuck in time we are time space creatures and so all the words that we've used to even describe it it's like how did he know before that's a time word or we're talking about foreknowledge time word predestined that's a time word pre so the way I've had to think about it is this if God is the creator of time he's not bound by time right he interacts with us in it but he's outside of time from everlasting to everlasting your God when I was in high school, my senior year, a bunch of us drove up from San Diego to the Rose Parade. And it was a big deal. We spent the night there to reserve our spot, I actually slept in the gutter uh, to get our spot there. And it was really incredible. I mean, you see it on TV, but these floats are ginormous. And basically the only way that we could see the parade was like a float at a time, like right there in front of us, so you could kind of see the one that just went by, then there's this float, and then there's that float. And because of our perspective, we had to see it in sequence like that, right? However, if you could get in the blimp and go up high enough, like the Goodyear blimp that'll fly around sometimes, and you got up high enough, you could see the first float and the last float all at the same time, right? It's just the parade because your perspective is different. So in the same way where we're coming from, when we think of history, it's got to be like, well, yesterday, today, tomorrow. That's the way we have to see things, but God's not bound by that. So God's able to do this. And it's not like God is just guessing and then making it happen. He's like, no, I I know. I can tell you what's going to happen. So let's look at Ezekiel 26. I'll give you a little bit of the the, the background of this. Whoops. In uh, about, this was made about 588 is what it's been estimated. And Tyre was this pretty major seaport city that was along the Mediterranean. And this is north of Israel. So you think of all your Israel maps, you always think of there's always blue on the left side, right? That's the Mediterranean. And there's Israel. Well, north of it is where Tyre was. You hear about Tyre and Sidon are two cities up there. In the Old Testament, the maps, you'll see that it's an island. Oh, there, there's the mainland city, and then there's an island right off of it. This is all part of our story. I'll show you how in just a second. In the New Testament, though, by New Testament times, the maps, if you look at them, and even today, it's a peninsula. And all of this has to do with Ezekiel 26 and Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great. Fulfilling what we're going to read about. Okay? So, along the coast there, there was the mainland city uh, off to the right there. And then about a half a mile off the coast, there was this island as well. that People lived in both places, but the main city was was on the mainland um, until some of this began to happen. So, let's read about this prediction in Ezekiel 26. And we'll look at, okay, this is all the things that were predicted. How did this come true? And again, it's just one example here from, from God's word. So look at me in verse one. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel, son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the people, peoples is broken. It is swung open to me, I shall be replenished, now that she is laid waste. So they're going to take advantage of, of the destruction there. Uh, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. Never good news when you hear God say, I'm against you. And will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. All of these are very specific things. So, I'm trying to remember these. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God and she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I mentioned about blind faith earlier. Over 60 times in the book of Ezekiel, God says, then you will know that I'm the Lord. It's not blind faith. He's saying, I'm giving you evidence to believe here. Verse 7, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who we've been reading about in Daniel, right? King of kings with horses and chariots, And with horsemen and a host of many soldiers, he will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland. He will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls and with his axes, he will break down your towers. His horses will be so many that their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen and the wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hooves of horses, he will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword, and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. Now listen to this. Your stones and timber and soil, they will cast into the midst of the waters. And I will stop the music of your songs, and the sound of your lyres shall be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. You shall be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt, for I am the Lord. I have spoken, declares the Lord God. A lot of details there, right? Let's look at these real quick. Some of these predictions were that many nations would come against Tyre. Her walls and towers would be destroyed. The rubble will be scraped away. She would be made a bare rock. Fishermen will spread their nets over the site. Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the mainland city's walls and kill those inside. The debris, stones, timber, rubble, even mentioned soil, will be thrown into the sea. She will never be rebuilt and she will never be found again. Does that make sense? We read those? So how is this fulfilled? Well, this is what's crazy. Not long after this was predicted by Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar did attack the city. So let's look at how this played out. The mainland city was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 573 BC. Again, it was about 588 that a prediction was made. After a 13-year siege, 13 years, he laid siege to the mainland city. Now, it took so long because he didn't have a navy and the people had access to get about a half a mile out to this island. And most of the people actually escaped to that island and fortified kind of a new tire there. Nebuchadnezzar eventually comes in and he breaks down the walls, kills everybody inside. The towers are crumbled down and stuff. But it's this rubble. It's not a bare rock. And so it sounds like, okay, did this actually happen? The Nebuchadnezzar part happened, but it, it, it seemed like it's okay. So when is the rest of this going to happen? Well, over 100 years later, in 332 B.C., Alexander the Great tore down the walls of Old Tyre and scraped the site clean to build a causeway to the island, a bridge out to the island, leaving a bare rock behind, throwing stones, timber, and rubble into the sea for this 200-foot-wide bridge that, that he wanted to get out to the people. So this is, Alexander's taking over, he's defeating the Persians, and he was going down the coast there making sure that all of these Phoenician cities were subject to him, and you're on my side, right? And he got to Tyre, and he didn't have a navy, and they were like, no, we're good, just keep, we're good. And he was like, no, no, I want to make sure, and and they wouldn't submit to him. And so they learned the hard way that he was called Alexander the Great for a reason, and he gets his his engineers together, and they began to take all of this rubble and throw it into the sea. It was kind of shallow-ish in between the mainland and this island, and they began to build this bridge 200 feet wide, half a mile out. Now, it got deeper as they went, so they began to have to scrape even more things clean, and basically, it became this bare rock because they used all of the towers, all of the walls that had been broken down to make this, 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 out, uh, this bridge out to the sea, and it was this phenomenal, you, you can read about it in... in history books, you can Google it. Some people say it's his greatest military accomplishment ever. All of this, him not realizing he's fulfilling what Ezekiel predicted would happen. I'll show you on a map here what happens. So many nations did come against Tyre due to Alexander's siege. Nine different countries contributed to this naval assault. He, he had to kind of round up other people that he had conquered and say, I, I need you to help protect kind of the building project because the people of Tyre were watching this thing going like, okay, I think we're in trouble. So they'd send out these little raiding parties and attack the people there and try to burn it up. So they begin to build like these guard towers along this bridge. It was really this big deal. It took six months, okay? And different countries were called in to help protect this uh, this building project. Today, fishermen do spread their nets there to dry. Uh, the original ancient city was never rebuilt. It was so scraped bare and now the main city Uh, was kind of the focus there. That was used during different battles through the centuries, but what's interesting is the actual site of the mainland city is uncertain because they did such a thorough job of using every last rock that they could find. So here's what it looked like. We got the mainland city there I showed you. Uh, Alexander began to build this out into the water there, and eventually, I've got a show you a little pointer here. Uh, Eventually he had some ships that were able to breach the wall right here. I think they rammed into it. So they got in here and over there and they ended up um, conquering those people as well and enslaving them. But because of erosion, you can see the present coastline that happened because of Alexander's bridge that he made there. And this is actually what it looks like today. All of that going back to what Ezekiel 26 said, that they were going to be throwing all these stones and timber and rubble and scraping it bare. And eventually over time, it created this peninsula. Now here's what's cool. One guy calculated that the chance of these predictions coming true is estimated at 1 in 75 million. And yet they came true in this shocking detail. Now skeptics, of course who don't accept that there could be anything supernatural, said, oh, that was written after it happened. So he's just making it look like, no, we have copies in stone of the book of Ezekiel from 500 and 600 BC before Alexander the Great did all this to fulfill it. So the only explanation is this was exactly what God said was going to happen. And I love, again, that these two world powers ended up fulfilling it without even realizing what they were doing. So cool story there. Going back to people kind of being skeptical, I just want to remind you, again, the power of God's word is awesome, but it's also very convicting. And I find, I have found in my life that a lot of people don't reject the Bible and then start sinning. They start sinning and then they start rejecting the Bible. They start having these doubts all of a sudden because I I want to live this way, but the Bible is saying something different. And I, I know I can't do both. And so I'm going to water them down. Way back, actually in the 1800s, a guy named J.C. Ryle said this, be very sure of this. People never reject the Bible because they cannot understand it. They understand it only too well. They understand that it condemns their own behavior. They understand that it witnesses against their own sins and summons them to judgment. So it's not that you can't understand it. It's that, oh no, you know exactly what it's telling you. It's pretty clear. So let me give you one other example. We're not going to look this up, but Related to Jesus, there are over 60 major prophecies concerning the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. I'll show you how big that number is in in just a minute. Uh, Basically, it's been estimated, another guy said, about if 48 of them were fulfilled, it's like the chances are 1 in 10 to the 157th. That's like 1 followed by 157 zeros, okay? That's such a big number. And so for perspective, scientists currently estimate that there are between 10 to the 78th to 10 to the 82nd atoms in the known universe. And this number is 10 to the 157th. So the number is really, really big. But, excuse me, let me give you an example. The Old Testament states that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. So this is from Isaiah in the 700s BC. Of the line of Abraham, Isaac, Judah, Jesse, and David, it gets more and more specific. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He'd be preceded by a messenger in the wilderness. He'd be rejected by his own people. He'd enter Jerusalem on a donkey, betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, which would be used to buy a potter's field. That's just a crazy example there of how specific God can be in his predictions. He would be silent before his accusers. He would be beaten and spit upon. He would be pierced in his hands and feet. This is an interesting one. In Psalm 22, David, writing about a thousand BC, talks about his hands and his feet being pierced. And this is Centuries before the Romans were really doing this at all. And that in this psalm, he talks about a band of evil men have surrounded me. They're saying, he trusts in God. Let him, you know, let God rescue him. Sounds exactly like the crucifixion. And in Psalm 22, it says that they've they've, they've parted my garments. They've cast lots for my clothing. This is exactly what you see um, at the crucifixion. So really cool examples. Let me just tell you a little bit more of some odds. This guy named Peter Stoner in his book Science Speaks. He stated, he he estimated this, the odds of only eight of the specific Messianic predictions being fulfilled in one man is one in 10 to the 17th. So that's one followed by 10, I'm sorry, by 17 zeros, okay? So how big is that number? Okay, 10 to the 17th. You could cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. That is 10 to the 17th. That's how big that number is. You guys know, how we're proud of Texas, aren't we, right? We know how big, north, south, east, and west. This is a huge state. You could cover the entire state two feet deep with silver dollars. So the odds, the way this works is, if I put a mark on one of them and hit it somewhere, stirred the whole thing up, and blindfolded you and said, you walk around anywhere you want in the state of Texas, and the first one you pick up is the one that, you, that I marked, that's the odds of one in 10 to the 17th. And that's only eight of these predictions being fulfilled in one person. So you begin to calculate like this is just the argument that this can't be the result of human guesswork. There's just too much about even the life of Jesus. And on top of just not just the prophecies, it's his words and his miracles and his power over nature and death and demons and his resurrection. Like all of these things add up again for this evidence that Christianity is true. So what do you believe about Jesus? What are you going to do with this guy? And Chris mentioned a a few weeks ago the the crystal clear example of the gospel that this is what the whole Bible points to, that it's all building up to this fulfillment of Jesus being our Savior, our rescuer, the snake crusher that's going to take care of all of these things because we've got this holy God that demands perfection that I can't live, but also um, allows his son to live this perfect life that will count as mine. And it's all free. It's by grace. So let me give you four applications from all of this and my my prayer is that even in this you think to yourself what does this tell you about God? That we don't have this God who's like hide and seek and find me if you can. We have a God who revealed himself clearly to us who's given us objective reasons to say this this is clearly supernatural these words. I have the very words of God that he yeah he's a powerful God but he's a personal God. He's infinite but he's intimate at the same time and he hasn't left us wondering and wandering and what do I do and how do I get right with you he's he's given it to us that's a good God to follow so with this idea in mind that we have this God who's omniscient who knows all that's going on think about what that means for our current circumstance in the world today comfort and confidence hopefully for you flow from believing that God is sovereign. When you look at what's going on in our world today, none of this is taking God's surprise. He's not like going, man, this is a crazy year. I didn't see this coming. I wonder what's happening next. Like we are, right? History is going somewhere. We've got this God who's sovereign over all things, over all the details. And so hopefully remembering, this is why prophecy is, is a reminder. Like, Remember, I'm the sovereign God. I know all of these things. I'm completely in control. These false gods can't help you. These gods you're trusting in, it's it's in vain. In fact, in Isaiah, about Isaiah 40 through 48, he goes through this, calling out these false gods that some of the people are following, saying, let me just kind of show you, or let me challenge you, like, can you tell the future? Like, I can. From Isaiah 41, (coughs) he says, "'Set forth your case,' says the Lord. "'Bring your proofs, give evidence,' says the king of Jacob. "'Let them bring them, and tell us what is to happen. "'Tell us the former things.'" what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. A couple chapters later, thus is the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. And then listen to this. He says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And what's cool is in this same chapter, he goes on and he, and he makes another prediction about this guy named Cyrus that's going to show up on the scene and he's going to declare for Jerusalem to be rebuilt All of this taking place, this this declaration before Cyrus was even born. While Jerusalem was still standing, he said, someone's going to come and make this declaration. So again, even in the midst of comforting his people, he's like, oh yeah, let me throw this in here again, so that you know I'm the Lord God. A little bit later, a couple chapters later, he says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other I am God and there's none like me. Now here's the thing related to prophecy, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. When you believe in a God who is completely sovereign in all things, even over COVID and our culture, God isn't wringing his hands about the elections, about protests, God's completely sovereign. That should give you comfort. That should give you hope. And and hope is faith looking forward. It's confident expectation. I can know peace without knowing what's next because of this God that, that knows all things. Second application, just a reminder about God's word. You can know the word of God and still not know the God of the word. Don't make that mistake. The Pharisees that Jesus was the most frustrated with knew the word of God, but they didn't know the God of the word. They didn't know his heart. And so it's not a matter of just knowing stuff. It's not just information. It's transformation, letting you change you from the inside out. And really to know it and then not to do it means you really don't know it at all. You don't know it the way God wants you to know it. A.W. Tozer said this, Theological truth is useless until it is obeyed. The purpose behind all doctrine is to secure moral action you do something with it it doesn't just increase your knowledge and again knowledge is good but it changes your life that's why God's given us his word third question this is just a little challenge here really what do you believe about God's word God's revelation do you really believe you have in your hands the very words of God can you sit down with your family and you're about to read and say listen you guys God's about to speak listen we have the very words of God do you really believe that? What do you believe about Jesus? Um, like I mentioned before, if God has spoken, nothing is more important. Some people don't like God's word. And honestly, if I had to pick a book to follow, I wouldn't pick the, the Bible because it makes me feel good. It steps on my toes all the time. It convicts me. It shows me where I'm wrong, how I'm not being loving enough or forgiving enough for how selfish I am. It shows me those things. And A lot of people don't like the Bible because there's controversies in it and things that go against what our culture is saying. But Tim Keller offers this insight that I like. He said to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible is offensive assumes if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. Well, yeah, if there's really a God who knows all things and is completely good, he's probably going to have some things to say in here that that I'm uncomfortable with or that are going to be different than what the culture says. So again, I'm back to you. Am I just going to be an echo of the culture or am I going to line my life up with God's word? And if you've got this God that you're following who agrees with everything you're doing and everything that you say, it might not be the real God. It might just be in this idealized version of yourself that you're following. Last application. What will you do with the very words of God that have been preserved down through the centuries for you to have now? God has preserved his word through all these centuries, so that today, in 2020, you can have a copy of it. So what are you going to do with it? And you guys know, we make time for what's important to us, don't we? It's not that you don't have time. We make time, whatever's important to us. So, another quote from A.W. Tozer, he says this, the man who would know God must give time to him. He must count no time as wasted, which he spent in the cultivation of this acquaintance. Isaiah six two says, this is the one I esteem. This is God speaking. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. This is a big deal of God spoken. I want to give you a minute to pray. And as John is going to be playing and we'll be singing even at the end, it's a time of reflection. And however God's been speaking to you, if it needs to be repentance or a realization for the first time, like, I have not been taking this seriously. Whatever it is you need to do, I want to invite you, talk to the Lord about it. Paul's going to be up here if you have questions or want to join the church, whatever it is, but allow God to speak to you. So bow your heads. You can talk to the Lord for a second, and then John will start.